Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, good morning, church. Hey, if you have a Bible, open up with me to Acts chapter 18. This morning, Acts chapter 18. Pastor Brian did an amazing job last week, didn't he? Reminding us. Again, that was horrible. Like, that was the worst clap ever. Like, Pastor Brian poured his heart out last week, and you guys give him a golf clap? <laughs> Don't worry, first service did the exact same thing, and I responded the same way, so you're getting the same thing here. But yeah, he, what a great message and a reminder to tend our hearts, keep our hearts with diligence, for out of them the issues of life come, so... Uh, we're back in Acts 18 this morning, and we'll be looking at verses 24 through chapter 19, verse 7, with a message entitled, Missing Something? Stand with me once you're there, and we will read our text this morning, Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 24, we read, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when, when you believed? They said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts now. Lord, we, did, we know that you desire to change and transform us, and there is an opportunity for us to be different people than we walked in today, because your spirit is at work in this room through the teaching of your word. So, Lord, help us to be participatory this morning, that we would allow you in, that you could change and transform us. We pray, Father, for those in this room that have a lack of understanding relating to the Holy Spirit, the person in the work of the Holy Spirit. May you speak to us. May you bring us to a greater understanding relating to the necessity of not just the sealing of the Spirit, but the filling of the Spirit. 
that you would empower your people this morning. And for those of you who are, those here this morning, Lord, that don't know you, that they would come to know you. And so strengthen us, Lord, through your word this morning and meet us. For your honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Some of you know that I spent last week in the mountains of Montana hunting the ever so elusive service canadinus, also known as elk. Every morning, I held the same routine. I was up at 4 a.m., poured my cup of coffee, grabbed my Bible, did my devotion. In that order, because you know that your brain has to be stimulated with caffeine before you can understand your Bible. Oh, wait, is that the way it works? I'm not sure. Uh, At 4 a.m., that's pretty much how it works for me. I don't know about you, but um, I would then grab my camo, put it on, grab my gear, and I would be out the door by 5.30 a.m., drive to the mountains. I stayed relatively close. By 6 a.m., I was in the parking lot of the place that I was hunting. It was still dark, so I would put on my headlamp, get out of my vehicle, turn the light on. I would open the back door. I'm giving you a blow-by-blow here. I would grab my backpack, put it on, grab my rifle, and before I took one step into the mountains, I took the keys to my car, and I stuck them in my pocket And I zipped that pocket up so that they were secure in my pocket. And apparently I had some sort of an anxiety relating to those keys because oftentimes throughout the day I would find myself patting my pocket to see if those keys were where I put them. One day I was uh, taking a rest up on a ridge and I thought, I better check for my keys. They weren't there. And I thought, oh No, my greatest fear has come true. I have lost the rental keys. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? So I did what any reasonable person would do in that situation. I started to pat myself down like a TSA agent on crack. I was all over the place. If the the animals would have seen me uh, doing this, they would have said, what in the world is wrong with that guy, you know? But it, it, it turns out that the keys were right where... I left them in my pocket. They had just slid in down a little bit further in my pants, and I didn't know that. And man, let me tell you the relief that came upon me when I knew that those keys were right there. Have you ever experienced uh, that before in your life where you're missing something? Maybe it's your wallet. Maybe it's your purse. Fellas, if that's you, we'll talk after the service. Maybe it's your cell phone. Have you ever walked around your house and gone, man, where is my cell phone at? It's right here. You ever done that before? You're not even, John Thomas is the only person in the history of the world that's ever done that. Come on, be real. We're in church, man. So, uh, you know, we've all done these kinds of things. And so you know the stress that comes as a result of missing something. You understand the anxiety, the knot that is in your stomach when you know, I have misplaced something of value uh, for me. It's never fun when you're missing something. I don't know if you caught it in our text, but what we find here today is that there are some disciples in the city of Ephesus that are missing something vitally important to the Christian life. It's called the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. These disciples, uh, they probably know Jesus. They're probably sealed in the Spirit of God, but they are 
not filled with the Spirit of God. They are missing something incredibly important. I wonder how many Christians, maybe even in this room today, are in the same boat. They're missing something. Have you ever felt powerless in your Christian walk? Have you ever felt like, uh, is this all there is to this Christian thing? Perhaps it's because you are missing the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life. It was Francis Chan who said in his book, Forgotten God, Reversing the Tragic Neglect of the Holy Spirit, there's a big gap between what we read in Scripture about the Holy Spirit and how most believers and churches operate today. And I think that is incredibly accurate, even though this book was written, you know, 10 years ago. I think that is the same case as it relates to many people in the church. There are plenty of people going to heaven that have been sealed with the Spirit of God, but I wonder how many of us, even in this room, have been filled with the Holy Spirit, have been empowered to do the work of the ministry by way of the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you are here today and you've never experienced that, then you're in good company because there are plenty of people who have never necessarily experienced that. But I want to tell you something. God wants that for you. He desires for you not to just be sealed with the Holy Spirit, but also to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he wants to use you. And the only way that you're really going to truly be used by God in this life is by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you caught it when in Jesus' three-year ministry with his disciples, but there was an incredible emphasis on the idea that the Holy Spirit was coming. And in fact, he, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, he said, man, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I, go, if I don't go away, the helper can't come. What Jesus was saying is, it's necessary for me to die. It's necessary for me to rise again from the dead and then ascend to the right hand of the Father because when that happens, the Holy Spirit will come in you and he will also come upon you. Such an amazing truth. Jesus put a great emphasis on the necessity of the Holy Spirit in the life of, listen, his disciples. Are you a disciple of Jesus this morning? Then understand, you need, absolutely need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life. I wonder if you were to ask yourself this question, if God were to withdraw the Holy Spirit from me, would anything in my life change? Would I know the difference? If God were to withdraw his Holy Spirit from me in this moment right now, would you know the difference? Man, it was A.W. Tozer who said, I don't think we would. I don't think most people would know the difference. He said, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. That should alarm us. 
That there is a capacity to operate in this life when you think you're doing God's work, but you're empowered by the flesh. Tozer goes on to say, if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. Now, I'm not sure if it was 95 or 96, but I'm pretty sure it was a pretty high percentage that if the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the early church, the book of Acts wouldn't even be written because it is the acts of the Holy Spirit through the disciples of Jesus. And do you know there's an Acts 29, and we're living it out right now. We are the New Testament church, and nothing has changed. We are still in desperate need of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be a witness unto Jesus. You might be here today, and you might say, well, I'm not sure if I quite understand the difference between what it means to be sealed with the Spirit of God and what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. Well, I'm so glad that you asked that question because I'm about to tell you exactly what the difference is. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is explained by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He said this, In him, speaking about Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've heard it said that way. It's also known as the born-again experience uh, where the Holy Spirit comes inside of you. What's amazing about this is that when you hear the word of truth and you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God, the idea here is that he takes his signet ring and that he impresses him, his imprint upon you and it becomes a guarantee of your inheritance. Do you love to hear that word guarantee of your inheritance? It's not a pie-in-the-sky idea. It's not, hey, wishful thinking, I hope that this happens. This is an absolute emphatic guarantee that you are going to reside with him in heaven forever. Why? Because his imprint is on you. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. Until you go home to be with the Lord, uh, you have a guarantee in your heart, the Holy Spirit. You know, when you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that you went from being dead to becoming alive. It's born again. It is God's breath that he breathed on you. He breathed it just as it was with Adam in the beginning, where the Lord blew his breath in the nostrils of Adam and life came into Adam's being. The same thing happened to you when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus, at the resurrection, in the upper room, breathed on his disciples, and it says, and then he said, receive the Holy Spirit. They were born again in that moment. And when you believed on Jesus Christ, you were born again. The Holy Spirit came to reside inside of you. That is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the sealing of the Spirit. What is the filling of the Holy Spirit? Some have a difference of opinion relating to this. The, 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 the filling of the, the Holy Spirit is an empowerment of the Spirit for the purpose of being a witness. 
I believe that the filling of the Holy Spirit is also known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think they are two in the same term. I think that they are identical. The idea of them is the same. Uh, Jesus calls uh, it the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Remember that his disciples had already received the Holy Spirit. Jesus had already breathed upon them. What he's talking about here is a different relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's talking about being baptized with power, that they would be a witness for Christ. That's why he said, don't leave Jerusalem without the baptism of the Holy Spirit because you'll never be able to be the witness that I need you to be in the moment in your own power. You need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, why do I believe the baptism and the filling are the same? Because when the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus tells them in Acts 1, when it happens in Acts 2, listen to what it says. Acts 2, verse 4. And they were all baptized with the Holy Spirit? No, it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The filling of the Holy Spirit here is exactly what Jesus was referencing in Acts 1, 4, and 5, which is, he calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think it's the same thing. Hey, there are many guys that believe differently relating to that. It's okay. The reality of it is, though, there is a filling of the Holy Spirit outside of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, and I'll show you why. Over and over again, in the book of Acts, relating to disciples of Jesus, we see this. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. And when they had prayed, this is disciples gathering together. Peter and John had just been released from the Pharisees. They come together and it says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were what? All filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak uh, the word of God with boldness. It's important to note the evidence of the filling of the Spirit in this particular case is boldness. The evidence of the baptism or the filling of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2 was the evidence was speaking in tongues, which is speaking in a different language. That is to say that there is no recipe for what you can expect when you're baptized in the Spirit. What you know is it's what you need in the moment to be a witness for Christ. Does that make sense? So the, these disciples were filled with the Spirit. Again, Acts chapter 13, verses 52. This is speaking of disciples. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, I believe, are the same thing. You can believe differently. That's fine. Just make sure you have a biblical reason for it. That you've studied the Scriptures and you understand why you see it differently. What we can all agree on, I'm sure, is the absolute necessity of the need for this filling or this empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, it was Paul who said to the very church that he's going to go to and actually they're going to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul said, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That idea, that phrasing, be filled 
with the Spirit in the Greek, the idea is be being filled. It's a present tense imperative that is, the idea is that you need it all the time. Like there's not a time that you don't need this. You need to be filled with the Spirit of God, be being filled all the time. I wonder how many of you walk out the door of your uh, home every morning without the idea of even thinking about, I need to be baptized in the Spirit. I need to be filled with the Spirit of God so that I can be a witness for the Lord. Listen, I don't know where you work, but I'm sure it's difficult. I'm sure there's people there that you're struggling to love. I'm sure that you're going to encounter some difficulties in life. You can't afford to leave your house without the baptism of the Holy Spirit, church. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be a witness unto Christ. That's why Paul said, man, be being filled continually. Seek that filling of the Holy Spirit. One guy said we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit continually because we leak. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but all I know is I need extra empowerment to live for Christ and to be a witness unto Christ. What we find in our text here today is 12 men who have heard the preaching of Apollos, who have some understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, but they don't have the full context of what Jesus has done, so they have some understanding of who Jesus is, uh, and, and they're called disciples, so I think they're saved. But they've never experienced this empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and Paul says, man, well, we don't want to go another second without you experiencing this because you absolutely need it. And so this morning, that is my prayer, is that God will baptize us in his spirit, that we will be filled with the Holy Spirit this morning, that he will come upon us, that we can be the witnesses for Christ. And so I've divided these verses into two sections. First, we find the sealing of the Holy Spirit in verse 24, where it says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, by way of background, you might recall that a couple weeks ago, Paul ended his second missionary journey, and he made his way through Ephesus, and he went down to Jerusalem, and then back up to Antioch, which was really the hub of, for the Apostle Paul in this time. If you were not paying attention, then you would have missed that in verse 23, Paul's third missionary journey started. It tells us, after spending some time there in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Paul uh, loved to strengthen. He loved to share the gospel, but he loved to disciple and he loved to strengthen people in the ways of the Lord. As you can see by this map here, Paul would make his way up the same route that he went on his second missionary journey through Tarsus, Derby, Lystra, up through Antioch of Poseidon. And then he would make his way this time on his third missionary journey into Asia Minor. If you were with us in Acts chapter 16, you'll recall that when he was going through that region in his second missionary journey, the Holy Spirit forbid him to go in that area. Do you know why? 
because Apollos had to come first. I love that idea. Like we, we need to understand that God has a plan. And when he's reaching people, that he does it in a way where he uses multiple people. Uh, you know, Paul, will, we'll see later, he'll say in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he'll tell us that it was Paul who sowed, who planted the seed, and it was Apollos who watered. You see, uh, Paul came through on his second missionary journey. He didn't have time to stay there, but Apollos, God would send Apollos there again, and, and that's when the real work would begin in Ephesus. Paul gave them some seeds but Apollos came behind and watered. And you might feel in your ministry today that all you're doing is sowing seeds. I'm just telling people about Jesus, but I'm not seeing any effects. Well, guess what? You're doing your job. Your job is not to see the result. Your job is to be faithful with what God calls you to do, and you're called to be sowers of the seed. And then guess what? Sometimes you'll be a waterer of a seed that somebody else has already sowed. But it's the Lord that gives the increase. It's not your capacity to convince people about Jesus that causes people to come to Christ. It's the seed that's planted, the water that's used, and it's the drawing of the Holy Spirit that uses this thing. All we're called to be is faithful vessels for the Lord. It's take all the pressure off of you. You don't have to, you know, think that everybody's salvation is weighed on your shoulders. You can, God is at work, and he is drawing people, and without the Holy Spirit, there is no work to be done because it's all in vain. We're building on the wrong foundation. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to, and to, to draw people to the Lord and that we're just faithful to do what God calls us to do there. Paulos, and he's come from Alexandria into the city of Ephesus and he has intentions of being in the city. His intentions are to share what he knows with people. He's there to share passionately about the Messiah who has come. He believes this. I'll show you why in a second. Now, what we know about Apollos is that he is a Jew by religion and a native of Alexandria by nationality. Alexandria, if you know anything about this city, it was the epicenter of scholarship. It was a influential city, the second most influential city in the Roman Empire. Um, it was located on the mouth of the Nile where there would be much trade, breeding much culture. So there was a lot of people moving in and out of Alexandria at the time and it became, became the intellectual and cultural center of the world. This is the place that Apollos is from. He is, he is immersed you know, in this place of learning. One of, the, uh, greatest, uh, one of the greatest attributes or one of the greatest things that was found in Alexandria is it hosted the largest library in the world. And that's to tell you about the type of people that lived there. They were learners. They desired to study. And um, it, it also was a place where there was a large Jewish community. And it's interesting enough that uh, the... The, the Jewish community there was in this place of learning, and you know what they were doing? They were translating the Old Testament into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. It was finished in the city of Alexandria in 132 B.C. So it's to, to, to give you an idea of the type of culture that Apollos came from, that's why he was an eloquent man. That's why he was a great orator. He was skilled in the capacity to 
teach because that's what his culture breeded these kinds of people. He was a learner. It tells us here uh, that he was competent in the scriptures. You know what that means? Ultimately, it means that he understood the scriptures so much that he was incredibly difficult to refute. It would mean that he probably had the Old Testament memorized. I'm not talking about a scripture in the Old Testament. I'm talking about the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that he would understand. He would know exactly where to go. Do you know they didn't have uh, chapters and verses back then, right? That was inserted for us. Are we getting smarter or dumber? I'm not sure, but we'll figure that out later. <laughs> but, but he was a student of the word of God. And here's what's awesome about this is that he came to this city of Ephesus with the purpose of instructing those there in the way of the Lord. He had an intentions when he came to the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was also a highly cultured and learned city. It, was, it hosted a famous library as well. It was called the Library of Celsus. Here you can see in this picture, it was quite a building. It was considered an architectural marvel of its day. Ephesus is probably most famous uh, for its temple to, the, uh, to, to Artemis or Diana. Here is a picture of what it might have looked like back in ancient Ephesus. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus hosted a coliseum or a theater that would seat 24,000 people. Uh, the population in Ephesus at this time was somewhere around 250,000 people. And so Apollos comes here. He's coming from what would be considered the epicenter of intelligence, of, of learning. And he comes into this culture and he says, man, I'm going to teach these people about, I'm going to instruct them in the way of the Lord. What we know is that Apollos had enough information to make a case that Jesus Christ was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and he had no reluctance to share it. It tells us here that he was fervent in spirit. It literally means that he was passionate and zealous relating to the Lord. And that makes sense if you're a Jew and you're talking about the Messiah because they were passionate and zealous about the coming Messiah. And so it's, it's, when Apollo showed up at Ephesus, he didn't, he didn't have to say something. He had something to say. Like he was studying the word of God. He had something to say when he stepped into the synagogue. He was going to teach them about the Messiah that they are all longing to see. He's going to show them from the Old Testament that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Now that's the extent that he knows. He doesn't know the gospel. He doesn't understand that Jesus Christ died and that he rose again from the dead. What he knows is what John said, that there was one coming after him that he wouldn't be worthy of uh, loosening his sandal strap. Apollos had a limited message, but he gave people what he knew. I don't know what's hindering you from being a vessel for the Lord or to being a voice box for the Lord, but if it's I don't know enough, that's not a good excuse. It's not a good excuse to say, well, I just don't know enough. Listen, if you got saved yesterday, you know enough to tell somebody about Jesus. You, you tell them what you know. You don't allow what you don't know to hinder what you do know. You tell people what you know. And Apollos had no problem doing that. 
He said, listen, I don't have it all figured out, but what I have figured out, I will give to you, and that should be the same for you and I. It tells us in verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him, along, took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, were, who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So the Apollos took his limited message to the synagogue and he spoke boldly before the Jews in Ephesus there. Now, understand, this wasn't the first time that these uh, Jews had heard about Jesus. Because Paul, in his second missionary journey, it tells us in Acts 18, 19, that he went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews as he was passing through. He intrigued them in such a way that they said, Paul, will you stay here with us and explain more? And he said, I can't do that. Because remember, he had a haircut in Chantria, and he had, to, he, was, he had to complete his Nazarite vow. He had to take that hair to Jerusalem, which is where he was headed from Ephesus, to deliver that hair to the priest so that he could complete his vow. And so he told them that he would come back if the Lord willed. And guess what? The Lord willed. Here, on his third missionary journey, on his way back through, he is going to stop in Ephesus and he's going to speak to them relating to Jesus Christ. And we'll see that here in a second. Apollos goes into the synagogue and he begins to speak about Jesus being the Messiah. And he did so in such a way that he stimulated uh, the, the minds of these people. Not only that, but there were a couple in, the, in that uh, synagogue in that moment that happened to be uh, people who the Apostle Paul brought from Corinth to Ephesus. Their names are Priscilla and Aquila. Probably also in that place was a man named Sosthenes, who you know was the ruler of the synagogue there in Corinth who got beat up because of the Apostle Paul's message, and uh, he ended up coming with them to Ephesus. And so you have three people who traveled with Paul from Corinth to Ephesus there in this synagogue. And it tells us when Priscilla and Aquila, when they heard the Apollo speaking about Jesus, they probably were thought this, the, the hand of God is upon this man. The Lord is working through this man. He has what he knows he's teaching very accurately. He just doesn't have the complete message. And so, like any Christian should do, they came alongside of Apollos, and it tells us that they explained to him the way of God more accurately. More accurately. Some of us are like, well... You know, that's your belief, and this is my belief. Is truth relative? Last time I checked, it's not. God's word is absolute, and it's not relative. It doesn't change over time. It means the same thing when it was written as it will when we're in heaven. It will never change. God's word uh, never changes. It's immutable. It's not relative. But here's the reality is that Apollos doesn't have the full picture, but what he has, he is handling accurately. 
he is delivering accurately. And so it tells us here that they, uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they came alongside of him and they probably showed him, oh, Apollos, you're talking about this Jesus who came and who, you know, all this kind of stuff and relating to the Old Testament scriptures about what the Messiah would do, that he would die and that he would rise again from the dead. And they give him the rest of the story. And he now is further equipped to now take the gospel, it tells us, into the city of Corinth. The city of Corinth, Paul left. When he left, the Jews weren't happy. <laughs> when he, they were not happy in the fact that he brought the gospel into Corinth in the first place. And Apollos is like, well, that sounds just like the place I should go. I mean, I, I love controversy. Let me just go right in there. He wasn't afraid. He was walking in the boldness. Where did he get that? I suggest to you it was the Holy Spirit. This man's life, he was saturated in the Spirit of God. He did what he knew to do with what he had, and he was incredibly effective. It tells us that he came alongside those believers in Corinth, and he was able to, those who received the gospel by grace, he helped them understand more and grow in their faith by way of refuting the Jews. The idea is that there were Christians in Corinth that couldn't defend their faith. They believed in Jesus and, and, and that, but they weren't able to defend their faith to the Jews. But it tells us here that when Apollo showed up, that he refuted them uh, powerfully by the scriptures. It wasn't his opinions about Jesus. It was what the word of God said about Jesus. He discipled these believers in Corinth just like he had been discipled by Priscilla and Aquila, which is to say you and I have an obligation from the Lord to be discipling people. Jesus told us to go into all the world and make disciples. We're called to come alongside of people to help them grow in their faith. And, uh, you know, you should have always a Timothy in your life and a Paul in your life. You should always have somebody pouring into you and you should always be pouring into somebody else. You should always be doing that. If you've never done that before, hey, today's a great day to start. You just tell the person next to you, I'm going to start telling you about Jesus. How about that? And they say, like, okay, I'm going to start telling you about Jesus, and you guys can do it together and figure it out. But the reality of it is we should be doing this. And, you know, we're not just, we're not just to be taking in information and holding it. The point is to take in so that we can give back out so that we can pour into other people. There are people in your life that God has put in your path because he wants you to share. Me? He wants to use me. He wants me to share with I don't know enough. Not a good excuse. You know enough to tell somebody about something, right? You know enough to tell somebody that they need Jesus. If you have Jesus, you know enough. And you tell people what you know. So interesting the way that God used Apollos here. He was growing in his faith. And I love the idea of that because Apollos came from such a heady place. Like he was from Alexandria. Like it was, made the people of Mars Hill look like peasants, you know. He was an elite learner. That would be the idea. It would be like Paul being, the, you know, a student of Gamaliel, like the elite understanding and student, you know, been scholarly kind of idea. And Apollos was humble enough, though, 
to understand that he needed discipleship or you? Are you humble enough that if God were to bring somebody alongside of you and say like, hey, let's talk about this. I heard you say this. Let's talk about this and help you grow in your faith. Are you humble enough to receive it? Are you humble enough to have the conversation? Oh, I know everything about the Bible. Do you? I don't think you do. I don't think I do. I think we all need, need to be continual learners in the word of God. Yeah, we're to be students of the word of God, to rightly divide the word of God and all these kinds of things. But listen, you can always grow in your understanding. And I love that Apollos was the kind of guy that did that. This brings us to the, the filling of the Holy Spirit here in chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John's baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in one, in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. Came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So Paul uh, makes his way to Ephesus uh, he doesn't meet Apollos there in Ephesus. Apollos has already gone forward over into Corinth. And so, you know, somewhere along the way, I don't know if they, they meet or whatever, but uh, Paul definitely references Apollos and his work there um, in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Well, it must have been very interesting to the Apostle Paul when he comes to Ephesus and it says that he finds some disciples there. When he left uh, Ephesus, the only disciples that he knew that were there were Priscilla and Aquila and Sosthenes. They're the only people that he knew were believers. Yes, he had conversation with the Jews there and they were intrigued, but they wanted to know more and he had to go. But the Lord brought Apollos there and now there are disciples there in Corinth, and it tells us that there are, specifically, he runs into 12, uh, in Ephesus, I'm sorry, he runs into 12 of these men in Ephesus. So, you know, are there more women and such? I don't know, but, but it tells us in verse 7 that there are 12 men that Paul is primarily talking to here. And uh, so he finds disciples there. Now, this terminology is somewhat controversial uh, relating to Acts chapter 19, verse 1, relating to the idea that they were disciples. And the reason why is because there are many people who believe uh, in this passage that these, these, these men were not saved. And so what ends up happening is Paul walks them through the gospel and they get saved here and they're sealed with the Holy Spirit. The problem with that is it doesn't say that they're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It says that they're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the, the first problem. The second problem is, and it's probably the first problem. I probably got these backwards. But, but, but the issue is, uh, 
in the hermeneutics, it's called the, 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 the first use principle. The first use principle. In other words, whenever you look for a word such as disciple, you look in the book to where it's first used, and that's what it means for the rest of the book. In this particular case, nowhere in the book of Acts will you find the word disciple referring to anything other than a Christian. You won't find that in the scripture. You'll find it in the... Um, you know, you'll find it in the Gospels where you see that there are disciples of John and then you will find that there are disciples of the Pharisees and such, but you will not find that in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you find disciple means Christian. It means people who are saved. I believe that these people are sealed with the Holy Spirit. They have enough understanding of Jesus to know that they need to put their faith in him. Did you know that's all it takes is just a little faith to, to get saved? Did you know that your salvation isn't hinging on your complete capacity to understand the person and the work of Jesus Christ? Are you not grateful for that here in this place this morning? That you don't have to know everything in order to get saved? They knew enough to know that they needed Jesus. Hey, when I got saved, I didn't know anything about Jesus. And in fact, I'll let you in on a secret. I didn't think Jesus was God. <gasps> you dirty rot. <laughs> but what I knew is I needed Jesus. And what I will tell you is my life changed when I asked him into my life. My life changed radically. Overnight, no joke. Here's what I'll tell you is that if we think that we have to have this somewhat capacity of, uh, you know, get our minds wrapped around the person of Jesus in order to get saved, I think we're missing the gospel because it's by grace, through faith. In Christ, yes, we need to understand that we need a Savior. Yes, we need to understand that Jesus is the one. That's about it. Do you know, uh, when you think about the thief on the cross, and you think about his capacity of understanding of who Jesus was, he had no, who, dude, he probably met Jesus on the way to the cross. He probably was like, I've heard of the guy. I don't know much about him, but now I'm crucified right next to him. And you know what Jesus says to him? Well, dude, you just don't know me enough. I'm sorry, you don't have a, a proper understanding of who I am. That's, I have a problem with guys like Paul Washer who uh, make you, it becomes so complicated when it comes to the gospel. They make you feel like you could never get saved. And in fact, people are getting unsaved as a result of the way that the guy preaches the gospel. It is, I'm not, not try, trying to discount the guy and the way that he works, but man, he makes the gospel complicated. To me, the gospel is simple. Jesus said, believe, and if you believe, you're saved. Call on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, the Bible says. It doesn't say sit down and make sure you have a thorough understanding of your sin, of Jesus, and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Then you can get saved. That's me cleaning myself up before I come to God. That's not the way the gospel works. The gospel says come to God and he'll clean you up. That's the whole capacity of understanding. I think that these guys are saved. I think that they're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, there are 
great people who believe totally opposite. You know, and in fact, the cessationists, those who believe that the Holy Spirit, the, the active work of the Holy Spirit is not happening today, that it died with the apostolic age, the last apostle died, that the, the types of things that we see in the book of Acts are no longer happening, they would say that, uh, no, they aren't saved, and they would say that this, the, the only experience that we can have with the Holy Spirit is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that baptism and the sealing are kind of the same thing. The cessationist John MacArthur said this, much, convert, converse, um, much controversy surrounds <clears throat> the spiritual status of these men. Those who insist that they were already Christians use this passage to proof text for their view that receiving the Holy Spirit is subsequent post-salvation or second blessing experience. Such an interpretation, however, is untenable. I would say the cessationist, like MacArthur, rejects the idea of a baptism of the Holy Spirit or a filling of the Holy Spirit. I think that's untenable and undefendable in Scripture. I don't think that you can defend that position from a scriptural standpoint. I love John MacArthur. I listen to him all the time. I don't agree with everything the guy says, but he's a Christian. He's going to heaven. I just think he's wrong about this. I think that, you know, Calvary Chapel's position on the Holy Spirit is that there is subsequent fillings of the Holy Spirit, that we do believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today, that we think that the Holy Spirit is active and alive and working in the same way that he always has, that we are the Acts 29 church, that the book of Acts didn't close at 28, but we're the continuation of the acts of the Holy Spirit through the disciples of Jesus Christ, which includes you and I. I think that these guys are saved, but they need the filling, and I'll show you why in the scripture here this is the case. And by the way, these disciples, these 12 men, it's important to note that they are third-generational Christians, not second-generational Christians. What does that mean? Is that this goes beyond the apostolic. The gifts of the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit goes into the third generation, and it continues on, by the way. But Paul tells these disciples here, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Now, again, the, some focus on the first three, part, three verses, did you receive? Did you receive uh, the Holy Spirit. I think the emphasis is on the last three words, when you believed. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul isn't refuting the idea that they believed in Jesus Christ. Well, what does it take to get saved? Belief in Jesus. Complete and total surrender to Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about understanding that I need to put my faith in him. That's how you're saved. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were saved? Now, he, I think he's asking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I'll tell you. When I got saved, I didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit either. If you would have asked me, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you got saved, I would have said, like, I don't think so. I have no idea. What's the Holy Spirit? I would have said the same thing these guys said because I got saved in my bedroom by myself as a result of somebody sowing seeds in my life, and I had never really understood Jesus or gone to church or anything like that. It just goes to show you that, man, there are probably people that you know that are saved because they put their faith in Jesus because that's all it takes. That's all it takes. 
Now, the evidence of that is a changed life, yes. That is 2 Corinthians 5.17. But man, just because somebody isn't growing in their faith or they're not, they don't have a full comprehension of Jesus doesn't mean they're, they can't get saved. Here, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They did believe in Jesus. They clearly had put their faith in Jesus. And they said, no, we don't need, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes, well, okay, well, then what were you baptized into? Because remember, the foundation of Christianity in the book of Acts is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and get baptized. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and get baptized. That's what they did. Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up. He gives this great message about Jesus being Messiah. They ask him, hey, what do we need to do to get saved? And he said, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and be baptized for the remissions of your sin. Not that baptism uh, you know, cleanses you of your sin. It does not. It's a public proclamation that you belong to Jesus. Uh, last week, Ella got baptized here. Awesome. So cool. Um, and what she was doing is she was identifying with Christ and being laid in the watery grave. And then she was risen to newness of life, making that proclamation that she had accepted Christ. And it was an identification with Jesus. That's what baptism is. But it was standard practice in the New Testament church that they would, when people would get saved, they'd be baptized immediately. They didn't wait. We should have a baptismal set up at all times. And if you get saved today, you should be baptized right now. Why? Because that's the way the church did it. It's the way we should do it. Uh, it's fine to wait. You can, you know, whatever. But are you really making that decision? You know, and, and that's the kind of the idea. By the way, this is the only time in Scripture that we ever see anybody rebaptized here in this passage. It's the only time that somebody gets rebaptized in the Scripture. And I think it's right the, the way that they do it. Paul says, okay, well, you were baptized in the baptism of John. Well, that's a baptism of repentance. Let's baptize you in the Lord Jesus Christ because you're identifying with him. What he's doing is just helping them have better understanding of what they're doing. They didn't understand their baptism. Not that the baptism of John was wrong. It was right, but it wasn't complete. And so Paul says, well, let's complete the process and let's baptize you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's interesting. In this moment, when they're baptized, the Holy Spirit doesn't come on them at that point does it? It says, then Paul laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. Notice, the Holy Spirit came on them, not in them. Two different things. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, the Holy Spirit is with you, and he'll be in you. That, that, those are two relationships that we have with the Holy Spirit. This is a third relationship that all believers can have with the Holy Spirit, and it is the epi experience, the upon experience of the Holy Spirit. This is a Calvary Chapel distinctive, folks. This is one of the areas of Scripture where we, we sort of just say, like, we have a specific belief relating to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit is with everybody all the time. He is para. He comes alongside us. And that's shown in Scripture. Uh, when you 
came to Christ and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, it was because the Holy Spirit drew you. He was with you. John 6, right? You can't call upon the Father unless you're drawn. It's the Holy Spirit with you that puts that conviction of your heart, you know, to come to Christ. But then we have the an experience or the inexperience of the Holy Spirit where he comes inside of us. That is that belief upon Jesus. That's when we put our faith in Jesus. It is the born-again uh, relationship with the Holy Spirit where he comes inside of you. It, it's the idea. Remember in the Old Testament of the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory would come where? It, it would come upon and reside inside of the, um, the Holy of Holies. Remember? Did you know that you're the tabernacle, that your heart is the Holy of Holies and that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you, the presence of God? It's, that's the picture of the tabernacle. Listen, there's so much typology and symbolism relating to the layout of the tabernacle and how it points us to Jesus. If you're following me on my devotions on my Facebook page, you know that, or my Instagram, that uh, I'm going through Exodus right now, and so much, I'm going through the layout of the tabernacle. God is giving Moses all the information about what to build, all the furniture. All of it laid out points us to Jesus. Every piece of furniture in the tabernacle points us to Jesus. It's amazing. If you've never done that study, you should do it. It will blow your mind. These are the kind of things Apollos understood. But here's what we know here is that the Holy Spirit came upon them. Here, this is the third relationship that believers can have with the Holy Spirit, and it is the upon experience. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's a different Greek word. If it wasn't a, if it wasn't a different Greek word, we wouldn't say it was a different thing. But it is a different thing. It, it's speaking about an empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I said earlier. Remember when... They were filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4, and it says that boldness came upon them. Look at the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit here in this passage. It says they begin to speak in tongues and prophesy. These are gifts of the Holy Spirit that if they died with the apostolic age, then that wouldn't make sense, would it? Because these are third-generational Christians who are getting the gifts of the Spirit. But here's my point. It doesn't happen always. There's no formula relating to what you might experience in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What I know is that when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you are empowered by God to do whatever it is that he has before you. That's the purpose of it. That we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know what you need today, but here's what I will tell you. You absolutely need the filling of the Holy Spirit. You absolutely need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit so that you can be a witness for Christ. You know, I think so many Christians live in the sealing of the Holy Spirit, never experiencing the filling of the Holy Spirit because they don't know anything about it and they're not open to it. And what I know is God is a perfect gentleman and he's never just gonna overtake you. You're mine, I paid for you. Now I'm gonna come upon you and you're like, you know, and you, what, what, you're like a robot? No, that's not the way it works, is it? If you've never experienced the gifts of the Holy Spirit, is it because God's not giving you the gifts or you're not open to using them? You tell me. I think it's the, I think it's the end part. I think that we have to be willing to be used by God 
And we have to allow the Holy Spirit into us. And Jesus said it like this. I mean, he said the way that we're baptized, the way that we're filled with the Holy Spirit is all we have to do is ask. He said in Luke chapter 11, verses 11 through 13, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The worship team is going to come forward, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive the Holy Spirit tonight, or this morning, in a baptism of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's getting a little Pentecostal in here. Maybe so. Maybe so. It's getting a little biblical in here, I think. I think that's what it means. Listen, if you've never experienced... Uh, you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, come forward, take a step of faith, allow those who will be down here to lay hands on you and pray over you that you would experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of being a witness that God would embolden you, give you gifts of the Spirit to use for his glory and honor. It's all about him. It's not about you, but it is about him and it's about being faithful to where he has you and, and what he has you doing. So I would encourage you this morning, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Come forward. Allow us to pray for you that the Holy Spirit would come upon you. And not only, but listen, you cannot do that if you're not sealed with the Holy Spirit first. You can't skip a step. You can't go from the Holy Spirit with you to the Holy Spirit upon you. That's not the way it works. You have to have the Holy Spirit in you before he can come upon you. So that means if you're not a believer here today, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Call on him. He wants to save you. He died and rose again from the dead for you. God sent his son into the world so that you could be saved, so that you could be, reside with him in heaven forever. And if you don't have that confidence today that you're going to heaven, then you can if you will call upon his name. It's not even so much about the words that we say. It's about the faith and sincerity of the heart. Is Jesus the, the, the center of, of, of where I'm directing my faith? Is he the one that I'm putting my faith in? He has to be. If you do that in sincerity, you're going to be saved. Saved from what? Hell and damnation. Because that's what we deserve. But God wants to save your soul today. If you're not saved, call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. All you have to do is say, God, I'm in desperate need of you this morning. I want to be forgiven for my sins, and I believe in Jesus. I call upon the Lord Jesus as my Lord. Come inside of me. A simple prayer like that. Wait a second, Pastor Tim, that's not the sinner's prayer. Oh, is that in the Bible? Because I haven't seen it yet. It's about the sincerity of faith, Christian it's about you pressing into God and understanding your absolute need for Jesus. He will save you if you call upon him in sincerity. Ask me how I know, because I did it in the same way, not even fully understanding all of it. Listen, if you're saved this morning, come forward. The people will pray with you. They will lay hands on you and will ask the Holy Spirit to come upon us. These guys are going to lead us in a song. Will you stand with us? Father, we thank you for this time together, and we now commit these last moments of our service to you, Lord, and we ask that you would come. 
by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would fall on this place, Lord, that every heart in this place that belongs to you would be empowered, that you would give gifts of the Spirit today, Lord, that you would have your way in us. Lord, we so desire to to be filled with your Spirit, God. We ask you to cleanse us of our sin. Forgive us, Lord, for walking wayward. We want to be holy vessels before you, God. We want to be totally right with you in this moment. Restore our fellowship with you, God that your Holy Spirit would have a a proper place to come upon. So come, Lord, empower us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.